Hello everyone, welcome back to my channel and these bite size tails. So this one in particular is called Hounds and it's by Heather Biederman. Right on time, the woman with the silver hair and shiny blue eyes opened the heavy wooden door. Jake Kincaid smiled easily as he stepped inside. The large stone house was nestled in a dark, forgotten woods. The nearest neighbour had to be over ten miles away, and the whole property was surrounded by a large stone fence. He was lucky the directions were so good, or he would never have found the gate. An ivy-draped entry that seemed intentionally easy to miss. I'm glad to meet you, Mrs Rochester, he said, and shook her tiny, delicate hand. Oh, please, call me Mina, the woman said warmly. The house was brightly lit with soft furnishings and happy pictures of children playing on the walls. There were Halloween jack-o'-lanterns decorating tables. A pie was baking somewhere, and Jake felt instantly at home. An unusual painting of a woman whose face was half skeletal blue and half beautiful pink. Skin was hanging on the wall. Mina saw Jake looking at the painting and she started to explain its meaning. That is the goddess, her. Mina said. Like Helen the devil, Jake asked. She sighed and shook her head. No, like her from the Norse stories, H-E-L. She rules the underworld. Jake shrugged and tried to fake appreciation. He honestly didn't care all about the history and tried ancient religions. May I take your coat? Would you like a beverage? she asked. Oh, nothing to drink for me. He slipped his coat off his tall frame. I'm just excited to see the dogs. How about we get to it? Mina nodded. Hounds, before we see them, I need to ask you a few questions. These animals are very special to me. I don't let just anyone come see them, much less to find a proper home for their pups. Jake, an agent, agent from the USDA, in the Centre for Animal Welfare, found the ad on an exotic animal's website that was sometimes used by the criminal element looking to sell illegal animals to private buyers. He couldn't believe this grandma in front of him was a criminal law. So, from your post to me, you said that you were looking for special animals to care for. A faint howl sounded from not too far away. Jake nodded. Good, good, she continued. Now, tell me, Jake, have you ever cared for big animals? I'm talking maybe the size of a tiger or a small bear. I used to work for an educational animal park up in North Dakota and regularly took care of bears when I was there. That was a lie. Perfect. Do you have a lot of space for a pair of large animals to run around? I live on a farm about 32 miles from here. Lots of space for animals to run and a sturdy fence to keep them in, he said. She nodded. That is so important, to keep them safe from outsiders. You also need lots of fresh meat to feed them. This is critical. You are serving a noble cause. These beauties grow quickly and quite dangerous to outsiders. Jake pushed a little more. How much are you asking for the dogs? I mean, I don't want to waste your time if I'm in the wrong ballpark. We don't talk price until you meet them. You will see what I mean once you do. Are you still interested? He nodded but was starting to feel confused. But these are dogs, I mean. 
Sure, they eat meat, but how much special care do they really need? A face turned serious. If you get the calling to the hounds, it becomes your purpose in life. The hounds are everything. He remembered his ex, Tammy, had been obsessed with her cats. She made up funny voices for the cats and had them say ridiculous things to him. Those little monsters always clawed the hell out of him and dropped decapitated mice in his shoes. No moment of crazy cat lady, sex was worth that. He remembered that Tammy always said the cats were everything to her too. Made his skin crawl. Of course they are everything to me. He lied and put his hand on top of hers. We are servants to our pets after all. She obviously had heard what she wanted to hear from him and stood up. The hounds will meet you now, Jake. But I warn you that they are dazzling to everyone who encounters them. Astounding, really. Please try to stay calm. Let them come up to you. If they like you, you will know it immediately. We always say let the hounds choose their human companions. It works out best for everyone. Do not feel badly if you are not chosen. It doesn't happen for everyone. They walked down the hall to a large metal door with a complex latch. It was out of place for an old house like this. Mina swung it open and he saw deep scratch marks on the side of the door into the basement. They walked down stone steps and down the long, brightly lit hallway. At the end was a second metal door. This one was dented on the inside as if something had hit it repeatedly. The room had nice rings all over the walls, although he had no idea what they could mean. Mina fiddled with the latches. The door opened with a metallic groan. The lights were dim in the room. The illumination from behind them flooded in and suddenly two sets of eyes blinked in the darkest corner of the room. Skull? Hathi? Mina called out. She let out a whistle and the two hounds approached, their claws clicking on the stone floor. What came out of that darkness was more than astonishing. These were no dogs, but instead giant monstrosities. Thick, black, mottled fur covered their complete bodies. They were each five feet tall and rippling with muscles. Their feet had sharp claws like those of a tiger. Most disconcerting, however, were their giant yellow fangs, glowing ruby eyes that froze him in place. Skull and Hathi walked up to Jake and sniffed him. His heart quickened and sweat dripped down his brow. He smiled at them and raised his hand up to their noses. Good boys, nice boys. The giant hounds sniffed his hand and his hair and clothes. They panted and relaxed a bit. They sat on the floor and I looked up at him. I bet they are adorable as puppies. Those are the puppies, Jake. Their parents are out for a run on the grounds, she said with a smile. Jake's head spun thinking about how big the full-grown hounds would be. They are large. Some call them vogs or hellhounds, said Mina. Hellhounds born here on earth, also called Midgard. They choose their human protectors and we care for them until they change their spectral forms and go over the Rainbow Bridge. They then join the pack where they live at the place called the Hall of Hounds, which is ruled by the god Loki and his daughter, Hel. As a reward for service, all protectors have a home in the afterlife of the Hall with the pack until the end of the world 
in the time of Ragnarok. It is the ultimate honour for one who loves animals as I do. What a nutcase. His eyes darted around the room and stopped at the food trough where there were a big pile of bloody bones. A glint of silver on a pair of shoes in the pile stood out. One of one of the shoes, a bloody leg stump protruded. He gasped and backed away. What the, do they eat people? Mina nodded. It's usually cows, sheep and chickens, but hellhounds happen. No way. Jake started laughing in disbelief. This can't be real. Where are the cameras? This is obviously a joke. Jake walked up to one of the hellhounds and started to poke it, looking for some sort of prosthetics or movie animatronics that would give away the con. With that, a growling hellhound pounced up and bit off Jake's probing hand. The other hellhound leaned in and took a chomp out of his leg. Jake fell to the ground, sputtering in shock, trying to crawl away. Oh, Jake, said Mina, I was hopeful that when you saw my babies, you would fall in love too. I guess instead you will just have to be their dinner. The world is really going to the dogs, don't you think? Mina laughed. As she turned to walk out of the room, the door creaked shut and was bolted on the other side. The last thing Jake saw before passing out were two pairs of red glowing eyes leaning in as yellow fangs began to rip at his flesh. The end. I like that story. <laughs> so if you haven't, or do not know, that's all about the Norse um, following and the Norse gods and obviously the hellhounds and then the Svenra, you know, different wolves in Norse mythology but all very interesting indeed thank you for listening and many blessings hello everyone welcome back to my channel bite size stories this one's called last one at the door by griffin carmichael Trick-or-treaters are so darn cute, especially the little ones. The ones who can barely walk or are carried in the mother's arms, all dressed up as clowns or pumpkins. Most of them are in big groups these days because of the weirdness that some people get up to. Can't be too careful, as they say. I've pretty much given up on having any more callers at my door. It was getting late, so I turned off the porch light and went to settle down for a B-movie horror fest. I was looking forward to eating all the leftover candy, full-size bars, no skimping this night, at least, and getting in some classic Elvira camp. I'd just got uncomfortable in my recliner when the bell rang. It was surprising, because not having a light on was a signal that the candy-grabbing event was over for the year. Grunting, I set aside my glass of soda and the bowl with the candy. I'd gotten halfway to the door before I remembered it. Probably should bring that along, I muttered. Darn tardy kids. I just knew it was going to cost me at least a handful of Snickers bars before all was said and done. I grabbed the bowl and started back to the door. Unlike most kids, this group didn't ring again. It was quiet outside. The only sound was a low rumble from the TV. I flicked on the porch light and looked out through the window. Set at eye level in the front door. I couldn't see anything. And at first I thought it was a prank. The dulcet tones of Elvira's wicked intro was urging me to get ready for some scary shit. And I nearly went back to the living room. 
but it didn't sit right to ignore the bell. Some kid was waiting for candy. If they were the bad kind of child, they might tore the paper in my yard or egg the car. Better to give up a Snickers or two than to cope with that. So I opened the door. I was holding the bowl of candy and out as the door swung back. I nearly dropped it when I saw who, no, what. My brains insisted was standing just the top of the steps. It was just one kid, small and fragile looking. Not more than skin and bones. Pale as a ghost. Though not dressed as a ghost. Not all cheap with cutouts for the eyes and mouth. Just a white face with dark sockets where eyes burned in a fiendish fire. I forced out to laugh, though what I wanted to do was scream. Don't be ridiculous, I chided myself. It's just a cane with rather FX skills. That's an awesome costume, little dude. Did you come up with it by yourself? Or is it from some new fandom? The kid just looked at me, those eyes blazing, his mouth. And I say his, because I think he was a boy. Was thin, wide slit. And I figured he had done some kind of putty. Sharp, pointed teeth peeked out. I nearly jumped out of my shoes when a shadow behind the kid moved. My eyes widened as a taller figure took shape and moved towards me. As it came into the light, I could see it was female and made up just like the kid, both were wearing some sort of loose tunic and covered them from chin to foot. Long, thin toes with sharp nails were just visible below the hems. Oh, hey there. I didn't see you at first. <laughs> you know, we don't always get mums who dress up with their kids, at least. Not at this level. Do you guys do cosplays? I've done a few conventions. Maybe we've been to the same ones. The kid's mother shook her head. No, I'm afraid not. Hmm. This is a special night for us. Her voice it was barely louder than the breeze that brought a chill to my skin. For an instant, I lost track of what I was doing. I shook myself and realised I was clutching the bowl of candy like a preserver. My hand trembled as I held it out. Well, Halloween is special for kids, isn't it? Better than Easter for the sugary goodies. For sure. Help yourself, kid. I think you guys are probably going to be my last visitors for the night. So get one for your mum too. The kid's head swiveled around. And at his mother's nod, he reached out and took two Snickers bars. Only two. I usually distributed the candy because the little demons took a handful. But this kid just took two. You can have another if you want, I said, shaking the ball. He just looked up at me, as silent as ever. His mother moved up and put a pale bony hand on the kid's shoulder. Thank you, but no, we don't want to spoil his dinner. I looked into her blazing eyes, wondering how she'd done that effect. It would be awesome if I could figure out how that was done. Maybe good for a win at the next fan con. It felt like I was falling into those eyes. I don't know how long I stood there like that, in the yellow glow of the porch light. But after a while, she reached out and touched the hand that was still holding the damn bowl out. Thank you for your kindness. You're the only house that would open the door for us. Hey, no problem. Opening doors for all little monsters is what it's all about, after all. Later, while I was watching Elvira's cleavage do some amazing things on a flat screen, I realised I never found out what their costumes were meant to be. Guess I'll have to ask them next year. The end. <laughs> and that's the end of that bite-sized tale. I'm assuming aliens 
or the black-eyed people maybe i don't know something like that anyway thank you for listening and many blessings hello everyone welcome back to my channel and bite size stories this is called the keeper's daughter by j naomi i the lighthouse didn't look frightening at least not from the gate where clara stood poised waiting for the guide frankly there was no reason in the world why a lighthouse ought to be scary what was it but a building composed of blocks with a giant light spinning at the top granted it was perched on a bluff and above the sea but nearly everything in this tiny corner of the world was the same the wind never stopped blowing here and the waves never stopped pounding only occasionally was there a day when it didn't rain a fresnel lens mrs roberts was saying smiling broadly and waving her hands at the brilliant white light above them for fifteen seconds it shone in white and then for five in red it was shipped here all the way from france through cape horn in south america i can't wait for you girls to see it isn't this fun yes mrs roberts judith gasped being the only one in the entire troop who liked to do these things fun mary muttered nudging clara in the ribs her usual sardonic smirk was plastered upon her face after all I had nothing better to do today than climb up 97 cement steps, followed by 14 rungs on a ladder, just to see a light bulb. Do we get a badge for this? Nancy raised her hand, while lovingly rubbing the 42 patches on her sash, a number that superseded any other girl by at least twice. I'd rather be working on the shopping badge, Mary nudged Clara again, winking this time with her devilish green eyes. Have you heard what the requirements are for that one? Clara nodded silently, noting the guide was approaching from the keeper's house. He was an old man, easily a grandpa's age or more, although his feet seemed to move quickly enough. His back was bent nearly double, giving the appearance of a turtle lumbering beneath the shell. Locate the woman's shoe department, of Nordstrom's demonstrate the proper way to remove a credit card from your purse. Select three pairs of your favourite shoes or one pair and one dress for extra credit. Pose in front of a mirror while the alteration lady pins up your hem. Shh, Judith hissed as Mary snickered. Girls, this is Captain Grayson from the Coast Guard Auxiliary. He'll be taking us up the towering groups of two. Now who would like to go first? Me, Judith screamed, raising both hands. Me too, Nancy added, lifting one of hers. Clara and Mary will go next. Mrs. Roberts waved the other girls away, releasing them to dutifully follow the plodding ancient auxiliary captain past the keeper's house and into the lighthouse building. In the meantime, we will wait at the base of the stairway. Adjusting her official Girl Scout uniform cap, Mrs. Roberts proceeded to march across the grassy field, separating the two structures. But Clara, Mary whispered through the side of her mouth, her eyes sparkling with her latest mischievous plan. Let's skip out of here. We'll do something else. We'll walk into town and get some food. How? Mary nudged her 
a third time, before raising her head. Mrs. Roberts, she called. I need to use the bathroom. The troop leader spun round, executing a nearly perfect 180-degree pivot to the rear. The ladies' powder room is in the keeper's house. Don't tarry over long. Yes, ma'am. The two girls scampered across the field into the neighbouring building. Hmm. Although it was painted white like the lighthouse, the residence was boring, two-storey structure in the shape of a block. There was a single window on the first floor and two peering out from the bedrooms above, each covered by a thick coating of salt water and endless rain. Shoving the unlocked door open, the girls were immediately met in a gust of musty cold air and the intermittent beeping noise of a smoke detector with a battery gun bad. I wonder where the bathroom is. Mary headed through the mudroom and into the building's main hall, while Clara hesitated, an odd chill sweeping down her spine. Are you coming? Mary hollered, her footsteps resounding on the worn wooden stairs, a noise that, for some unknown reason, set Clara's heart aflutter. A fleeting of regret and profound sadness erupted in her soul, as well as a unexplicable sensation of déjà vu. I think it's up there. I'm going to check the bedrooms. Okay, Clara whispered, refusing to leave her spot. In fact, she decided she'd rather wait outside and was turning to do exactly that when the door swung open. Auxiliary Captain Grayson stood before her, his bent back bringing his gaze nearly level with her own. You shouldn't be in here, he said, his voice sounding oddly familiar. There was a tone of regret in it, and something else. Fondness, pity. The old man's eyes were looking upon her, as if he knew her. You need to go on your way. I cannot until you do. What? Clara, please. He held out a hand, gnarled and thin. Clara. Clara! Mary screamed from the floor above. Clara, get up here right now. You've got to see this. Uh, excuse me, the girl mumbled, hastily running from the old man to the stair, swiftly mounting the steps, her hand on the dusty rail. Once upstairs, Clara walked down the hall to the second bedroom, knowing instinctively that was where she was meant to go. It was even colder than the floor below, the only illumination coming through the salt-covered window, where she found Mary, bathed in the sweeping light of the lighthouse resonal lens. Look at this. Now turning red, she handed Clara framed a newsprint from nearly sixty years before. Yellow and wrinkled, it had been sitting on Baru collecting dust. Between the slashes exposed by Mary's fingertips, Clara read the headline, Tragedy at the Lighthouse. Keeper's young daughter, killed in a fall. Below that, Clara saw her own face. It's time for you to move on, Mary said, her skin peeling off her body, beneath that innocent green Girl Scout uniform. Mary exposed herself as a hideous messenger of Satan's army. I ought to get a badge for coming to fetch you, don't you think? Reaching out, she grabbed Clara's arm with a clawed hand, while the room turned again from Fresnel red to Fresnel white.
Clara was soaked into the hideous world below. What, what did I do? she cried as the flames came up to meet her. You didn't read the article, did you? The demon laughed. You pushed the keeper's daughter, your baby sister, down all 97 of the lighthouse stairs. The end. Wow, that's not a very nice sister. I don't think you meant to do that. Hmm. Thank you for listening and many blessings. Hello everyone, welcome back. This is Wisteria here. Welcome back to the Bite Size Tales. This one's called The Not Wanting by J. David Cole. His father was dead. The old man had never been healthy, so it was only a matter of time before his heart gave out. Still, to his mind, it was somehow shocking, and his father, the man who'd always been there, was gone. His mother died due to complications during his and his twin sister's birth, and his sister died 16 years later, murdered by her cowardly boyfriend. Now he was alone in the world, which, to him, was shocking. When the last guests had gone, when he'd heard the last platitudes about his father being in a better place, the crypt, when the last of the covered dishes the neighbours brought had been picked through, he gathered his wits, selected a carving knife from the butcher block, made his way to the cellar. To be fair, he wasn't completely alone in the world. Danny was still around, and now he would have time to consider his next move. Also, as shocked as he has been about his father's passing, he also felt suddenly liberated. His father never allowed him to seek the justice his sister deserved. Now there was nothing and nobody standing in the way. He thought back to that night, twenty-five years earlier. His sweet, beautiful twin sister, so excited and happy to be attending the homecoming dance with Danny, the quarterback and class president. He'd always liked Danny too. After all, as offensive guard, it was his responsibility to assure Danny's safety, so he'd better like him. In fact, it was Danny who suggested the anabolic steroids, which had ruined his own homecoming experience. After the dance, the four of them skipped the regular after-parties. Danny's family owned a cabin in the country, so Danny invited his date, her brother, and the brother's date, to an intimate after-dance fireside meal of chips, slow gin and beer beside the lake. He thought back to that night now, a haunt of memories, the foursome laughing, having fun for a few hours. Then his date began making advances. Danny took him aside, handed him protection, offered to let them use the cabin's lone bedroom. Whether it was the beer, the steroids, or just the excitement, he'd been unable to perform. His date felt humiliated. She'd left, taking the car they arrived in to go home. He was humiliated as well. He stayed in the cabin sulking, drinking more beer for an hour. Then he'd heard the scream. Running from the cabin, he found Danny assaulting his sister. He lunged at Danny, knocking him to the ground. He ran to his sister and found her limp, her skin turning blue. She was dead. Danny snapped her neck. 
He turned on Danny in a rage, chasing him into the woods. The next morning, when his father had awoken, he found his son weeping on the couch. He'd final, finally begun to come enough to tell his father the story without sobbing by the time the police arrived. Danny's father had reported him missing, so they went to the cabin and found the body. Her neck was snapped, and evidence indicated she'd been violated. They asked him if he knew where Danny had gone. He explained how he chased Danny into the woods. The police launched a manhunt, but never found Danny. They never would, and soon it was decided that Danny somehow escaped and made a new life for himself somewhere else. Danny's father had probably helped him, but the police could never prove that. Danny got away with rape and murder that night. It was more than a week before his father, the man who was then his only remaining family, the man he'd just lost to a heart condition, discovered the truth. Danny hadn't escaped in the woods at all. He was a prisoner in the house of the very girl he'd murdered. Beneath the basement was an unused secondary root cellar. His father had caught him sneaking water down late at night and confronted him about why he was keeping the boy who had murdered his sister in captive in their cellar. He explained that when he caught Danny he wanted to kill him but was afraid that people would blame him for both deaths. Then when the police assumed that Danny was in hiding, he'd been afraid that he'd be in trouble for kidnapping. So he decided to let Danny slowly starve. But he knew that dehydration was a greater risk. So he was giving him water. His father paced and considered the options. The boy deserved to die for what he'd done. That was true. But was it their right to kill him? Would that be justice or revenge? In the end, he decided that the fact they wanted to kill him meant they could not. Vengeance isn't justice, and the daughter and sister deserved justice. He explained this to his son, but he also realised it was too late to turn him over to the authorities now. Why should his son be punished because of what Danny had done? So they kept him. For a quarter of a century, Danny was fed and watered. They installed rudimentary plumbing and shackles. Other than that, they went on with their lives, Forgot he was even there with the roaches and the spiders. However, now things had changed. So now he was coming down the stairs, knife in hand, remembering the lesson his father taught him. We can't kill him, Danny, so long as we want to kill him. However, he had one last secret. One night, several years before, he'd let Danny plead for his freedom. Danny swore he hadn't killed anyone. They were making love. The scream he heard wasn't fear, but rapture. They planned to be married. Her neck must have accidentally broken when a £230 god had suddenly burst upon them, wrenching them apart. He was remembering that night and those words now, realising it was true. He was remembering his father's words as well. He no longer wanted to kill Danny. And the not wanting liberated him into action. <laughs> and that's the end of that story, guys. I don't know what you believe. Was it justice? Was it revenge? Should it be done? Should it not? And if he knew the truth, that it was something that happened and it was an accident, why on earth did he keep him all them years locked away in the cellar if he knew it was an accident?
Thank you for listening and many blessings. Hello everyone, welcome back to these bite-sized tales. This one's called The Hudra by J.T. Williams. The problem with the North Sea is that it's so damn cold. Well, that's one problem. You would think to move from the Carolinas in the good old US of A that it wouldn't be too bad to do some technical work for six months in the dead of the Norwegian winter. You'd also be wrong. I'm used to working around other men for months on end, but when you struggle to speak a single Norse word about the only thing you might can find in a, is a good Norwegian woman, except on an oil rig there are no women, just me and some guys, in case you're wondering, that's not my thing. Luckily, due to a severe mechanical malfunction, we'd been moved back to Oslo. I took a cab to the outskirts of town near a large woods, something called Helvetor. There's a nice bar here, seemed like a good laid-back place. Plus, I'd heard it was frequented by what I do want, women, attractive women, something I needed, like right then. I went up to the bar and ordered a beer. It was a bit more sour than I preferred, but it would get me started. There were plenty of women and one old man. I sat down at the bar and scanned for those that might notice me. I turned to take another sip from my beer and someone sat down beside me. Good. I turned and to my disgust found the old man. You're an American, aren't you? You assume that pretty quickly. You sound like an American. I didn't assume shit. You shouldn't either. I see you're looking at these women. Don't bother. You don't want them. This old man is funny. Really? I take it you had personal experiences in that. He glared at me and snorted. No. Then buzz off, Grandpa. I don't need your dating service. Aye. Take care, but the hands of the holder take the willing. The man stumbled out, and I was left alone. What the hell was he spouting off about anyway? What in the hell is a holder? Damn, I need another beer and a shot. At least the bartender seemed attentive. The hours passed and I was getting drunk. The sun was down. Now and it seemed it had been up for a very long time to start with. I heard the door open. An attractive blonde came in. I say, I guess, another attractive blonde, but unfortunately the others weren't too keen to talk to me. There was one, but she only stared. And not in a good way. She was now glaring at me from the corner of the room. What in the hell did I do? I turned my attention to the girl next to me. Can I just have some vodka? She asked. The bartender served her up a shot and she slammed it. Her accent was familiar. She was American too. I'd say from northeast. Boston, maybe. Hey, I said. And it was cheesy, but it was something. She smiled. You're American? Working in the north, you know, oil. She gave me a coy smirk. Cool. I'm here on a story for magazine. I'm alone other than my camera guy. But I was trying to find something a bit more fun to do. I have something fun for you. That blonde pushed away between myself and my fellow American. Sorry, 
Mr Bond said in a seductive way. I've been watching and when foreign you should try foreign delights, not cheap and things like her. I love this accent, wow, maybe it's like Russian, I don't know. The American girl turned and stomped off. Oh, I think she's crying. What can I say? I guess I'm an asshole. It was love. Maybe it was a mix of alcohol and a sweet scent that drew me away from the bar as she led me out the door. Let's get away from here. I laughed as she laughed and tried to hide her smile. Her eyes moved up and down me. I grinned almost foolishly and with a jolt. Through the snow, she took me into the woods. I thought at first, maybe her car was parked at the nearby recreation area, but we went deeper. I stopped. Where are we going? She stood straight, her legs together. Her tight skirt formed around her body, and a cleaverish poked through a short coat. I watched her as she scanned the area. There was something on her back that I hadn't noticed before. It looked strange. She had been running backwards, or was I just that drunk? She pushed herself against me. I know what you want. I know what all men like you want, and I give it to you. Oh, yeah. Her fingertips glided down my stomach. Something slippery moved up my leg, but she kissed me before I could look down. I threw my arms around her neck to feel her body, but her skin was coarse. It felt oddly familiar, but even in my drunken state, no, I shouldn't be feeling that. I glanced around at the trees. That's what it is. Am I pushing her against a tree? Her hands gripped my waist and I gasped. Okay, finally. A tearing pain shot through my stomach and I coughed as a roughness pushed straight up through my throat. She let out a shrill sound and her eyes turned red. Filth of a man, she said in a ragged voice. I give you your release. I tasted blood and the world spun as I fell to the ground. She withdrew something from my body. Have I been stabbed? Shot? I'd never felt this kind of pain. She turned. Her back was tree bark and a bloody tail whipped behind her as she disappeared into the approaching storm. My blood melting into the snow. Footsteps cringed nearby and the old man from the bar came into view laughing, a shovel in his hands. I told you the hold would take the willing. He dumped snow on me and the light faded. The coolness, oddly comforting. What the hell is a holdra? The old man snorted, stupid boy. He wanted something local but didn't study his law. Third one in two days. These woods are getting full and my old back is sore. She doesn't pay me enough for this. The end. And that is the story of the Huldra. <laughs> Huldra. Thank you for listening. And remember guys, if you're in a bar and a pretty girl entices you, don't walk off with her. You never know what she might be. Many blessings.